Lord, we, uh, we, we thank you for allowing us to gather as, as brothers in Christ, and that this evening would bring you honor and glory as we look at a, a topic and a theme that we don't often want to talk about, suffering, and suffering for your sake. And I pray that at the end of the evening, though, we would be encouraged, and we would leave um, with a spring in our step that we would uh, be able to encourage each other as we um, will face persecution for you. And I pray for myself, Lord, that you would help me to speak clearly and to rightly divide your word, and uh, that your word would go forth and it would sink into our ears and into our hearts, and that we would be ever changed for your glory. And in this we pray, amen. So as uh, Pastor Dave mentioned, our theme this, this year for... Iron Man meetings is the household of God, and we are being reminded through every meeting that we have that um, the church is our family, and we, you might remember the last meeting we had, uh, we talked about how this family has many parts to it, um, many different members that all have different functions. We all function in a different way, and we add our, um, our uh, whatever usefulness that we have the talents that God's given us to be part of his body. And although we are diverse in the, the functions that God has given us, we're all one and we're part of his body. But also, being part of God's body means that we will share in his sufferings. And in First uh, Peter 2.21, uh, Peter writes, For to this you have been called. We've been called to be Christians for this reason, because Christ... Also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So, believers who are in Christ are called to suffer the way Jesus did. In fact, uh, Jesus is our example to follow. So, our, our text is going to be in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18, or sorry, verse 12. If you would turn there, and as you're turning, uh, just give you a little background to this book. Peter's writing to believers that are scattered in the area of what is now modern-day Turkey, the northern and kind of the eastern part of the country of Turkey right now. And, and these believers were facing some persecution, and he's writing to them to, to encourage them to persevere in their faith. And um, they were, it seems that they were fi- uh, finding some persecution or um, they were facing different kind of trials. We know from 1 Peter that they suffered uh, trials that brought them grief in chapter 1, verse 6. They were called evildoers in chapter 2, verse 12. They were reviled in chapter 3, verses 9 and 16. They were insulted for the name of Christ in our passage that we're going to look at in verse 13 of chapter 4. Peter uses the word suffer at least 16 times in this book. And a majority of the suffering faced by these believers uh, seemed to involve being verbally insulted, shamed, and shunned by those around them. Other than a reference to slaves being uh, beaten by their masters for doing something wrong, uh, it doesn't seem like we have any indication in First Peter that these Christians were actually facing physical abuse yet um, as they're suffering for Christ. However, Peter was writing to them from Rome at this time, and in Rome, the emperor was Nero, and he was ramping up his persecution against Christians. You can recall that 
there was a big fire in Rome that burned a lot of the city down, and uh, he blamed the Christians for starting this fire, although they did not. Um, and he was ramping up this persecution against them. And it's possible that Peter was experiencing some of this as he was writing to these believers, and he was writing to prepare them for what might be headed their way. And I think uh, for that reason, this is kind of a, a good book for us to be studying right now. I don't know. I feel like it's possible that there's uh, more suffering to come for us. We've had it fairly easy, so to speak, in our country. God has blessed us to live in a, in, in, in a really in a good place. But... Things are changing. So he's writing to these people, and he wanted them to know that although they were suffering now, their suffering did in no way could be in no way compared to the glory that was to come if they would persevere in their faith. So let's read this passage, 1 Peter 4. We're going to start in verse 12, work our way through 19. Um, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And you may have noticed that the theme of our iron men is mentioned in verse 17. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So what exactly is this judgment? And why does it begin? Why does it begin with us? Well, I think because of the context of these verses, 12 through 16, we'd have to say that this judgment that is being described here has to be, part of that has to be the trials and suffering that Peter was just um, explaining. Um, and if it, and it always, or it begins with us, the household of God, because God always lovingly disciplines those that are his own before his judgment goes out to unbelievers. And if we had more time, we could look in the Old Testament, some passages in Ezekiel chapter 9, for example, and Malachi 3, in these passages, uh, when God sends out his judgment upon the people, it begins with the house of Levi, the priest, and his holy temple. And so, when God's judgment starts, he starts with his own, and it works out to unbelievers. So, as we walk through this passage in First Peter together, we'll see that part of God's judgment is allowing believers to suffer for his sake. And just so we're clear about what kind of suffering this is, um, not all suffering that we experience in life is suffering for Christ. Um, I think there's a difference between suffering as a Christian and suffering because you are a Christian. Um, suffering as you're a Christian, I think our church is fairly familiar with. We just heard a testimony of a Christian that was uh, going through suffering. 
Um, we have many in our body that are right now or have in the past experienced the death of a loved one, uh, cancer diagnosis, um, marital turmoil, uh, chronic pain in their life, um, and, and much more. And all of, these, all of this suffering comes about because we live in a sin-cursed world, right? This is the same kind of suffering that, that unbelievers experience, right? I mean, they, they live in the same world we do. But Christians experience the suffering in a little different way because they can endure the suffering with joy. And they endure the suffering with joy because they know that this suffering has a purpose and it's not just useless and senseless, kind of the way Chris was describing here earlier. But suffering because you are a Christian is probably a little less common. Suffering because you're a Christian is persecution that comes about because we bear the name of Christ. Although God uses this type of suffering exactly the same way as the other suffering in our life to grow and conform us to his image, the Bible seems to make a distinction between the two. All right, And so for that reason, this passage that we're looking at really is, is pointed toward suffering because we are Christians. And we can see that our society is growing more and more hostile to biblical truth. Is it not? It's no longer acceptable to agree to disagree uh, on certain things. Like, you know, I don't know, gay marriage, uh, abortion, transgender issues. If you don't agree with the science, right, you should be punished. And so, as we see this, I believe that suffering because you are a Christian is going to become more and more common. And this kind of judgment is the judgment that begins with us, the household of God. So tonight... My goal is to equip you through God's word to navigate suffering by expecting it, by exalting in it, and by evaluating your suffering for Christ so that when persecution comes, your faith will increase and you will entrust your soul to your faithful creator. So we're just going to work through that outline tonight. We're going to start in verse 12. The first point is that we should expect suffering. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The first way we navigate suffering is by expecting it. And this, this word, word does not mean um, being paralyzed with shock. If somebody scares you and you freeze, that's not what it's saying. It's saying you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't be have an attitude of continuing bewilderment or astonishment at what is happening. So, for example, if, if any of you are baseball fans and you follow the Royals this summer, you were not surprised in any way when you heard that they lost, right? There was no sense of bewilderment or astonishment when you heard that they lost the game. They lost over 100 games. Almost set a record, right? Do not be surprised. And that's what Peter's saying. Do not be surprised. Come to expect it. There shouldn't be an attitude of astonishment or bewilderment when you face suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And John 15.20 says, a Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Peter is telling us not to be surprised when unbelievers persecute us because it's not strange. It's normal. In fact, Peter would probably think it's strange if we did not face 
some type of persecution. And because of that, there might be a nagging question in your mind, if you're not seeing this in your life, why maybe am I not facing suffering for Christ? Well, I want you to hold on to that question because we're going to come back to it here in a few minutes. But until then, we're going to move on here and look at how Peter describes this suffering that we should not be surprised about. He says it's a, a fiery trial. And this word for fire is pyrosis. And it's only used in the New Testament in one other place in Revelation 18. And it pictures the act or condition of being on fire, right? In, cha- in this chapter, God is judging Babylon and he has set it on fire. And all the kings of the world and the merchants are standing back and they're mourning for the great city as they watch it burn. Okay? And this has led some commentators to suggest that what Peter is preparing these Christians for is a persecution that would spread their way from Rome. As I mentioned earlier, Nero was, was persecuting Christians by actually setting some of them on fire. And this would make you think that this fiery trial would be a really bad trial. You have your small trials, <laughs> and then you have your fiery ones. But I don't think this is Peter's main point. Because he goes on to say that these fiery trials come to, to what? To test you. To test you. So if you turn back to chapter 1 and verse Peter, he kind of gives an explanation of this testing. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I believe that Peter is saying here is to not be surprised when a trial comes to test or to prove your faith. These trials can be really small or they can be really big, but they are all used to test the faith of the believer. So fiery does not necessarily point to the severity of the trial, but to the purpose of the trial. The purpose of the trial is to test and to prove our faith. Just as gold and silver is melted in a fire, causing all of the impurities to float to the top and be skimmed off, God is proving and purifying our faith through through trials to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Proverbs 17.3 says the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests the hearts. So these fiery trials have a purpose. That is to mature us, to make us grow in our faith and love for the Lord. Enduring these fiery trials will prove the genuineness of our faith and mold our character. And this is why we can rejoice and exalt in the midst of a fiery trial. And that leads us to our second point. The second way we navigate suffering is by exulting in our suffering. Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter tells us to rejoice. This is a command telling us to continually make a personal choice to rejoice. It's not a single isolated joyful response, but a continuous attitude of rejoicing. To rejoice means to be glad or delighted. And this command must be very important because it repeats himself. At the end of the verse, he says, to rejoice and be glad, or other translations might say, to rejoice with exceeding, 
with rejoice with exaltation or be glad with exceeding joy. So how is this possible? How do we have this attitude when we're facing suffering for Christ? Well, it's only possible because we're not rejoicing because of the suffering that we're going through. We're rejoicing because this suffering has a purpose. And Peter gives us three reasons that we rejoice here in this verse. The first reason is that we share in Christ's sufferings. And sharing in Christ's sufferings proves that we are part of his body. The unbelieving world hates Christians because it hated Christ first. In John 15, 18, Jesus said, The world hates you. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hate you. Hate, hated you. If Jesus were here on earth right now, unbelievers who serve Satan would hate and persecute him. But since he is not, they attack those that represent him, and that is believers. So, for example, the United States has many embassies in all the countries all over the world. And these embassies are considered sovereign ground of the United States, even though they're not in our country. And when there are riots and protests and assaults on a country's embassy, that real hatred is, is really pointed towards the country of origin, not necessarily that building or the ground that's being rioted on or assaulted, right? And so we are the same. We are Christ's ambassadors here on earth. And an attack on us is really an attack on Christ because we, re we represent him. And in this way, our suffering proves that we are connected to Christ. And by the way, Peter's not saying something or commanding us to do something that he himself um, had not done. If you remember in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were arrested and they were uh, brought before the, the priest and the council and they were commanded not to teach in Jesus' name. And Peter said, well, I can't do that. I've, I've got to obey God rather than men. And for that, they continued to preach in Jesus' name and received a beating for it. And in verse 41 of chapter 5, it says, They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That name would be the name of Christ. So you see, in Peter's mind, he viewed it as a privilege to suffer for Jesus. It was proof that he was connected to Jesus. He was in Christ. So the second reason that we rejoice is because we are rejoicing that Jesus will someday return. One day, Jesus is going to return in glory, and he is going to right all the wrongs and evil deeds done against those who are his followers. He's going to do away with Satan, and he's going to do away with his demonic influence in our world that causes all kinds of pain and heartache. And I believe that the greater the suffering that you will go through, the greater your rejoicing will be. And that might sound strange, right? The greater the suffering, the greater the rejoicing. But I just need you to use your imagination with me right now to think back to the summer. Um, we had several very hot stretches of weather and very, very dry stretches of weather. And for those of us who worked outside, we can remember this quite clearly. Just remember how hot and dry it was. Day 14 of more than 100 degree weather, no rain, hard ground, everything's dying, your grass just crunches as you walk across it. If you're a farmer, you, you're losing your crops, corn's curling up, beans are drying up, and there's just nothing to rejoice about. But you're rejoicing. Why are you rejoicing? 
Well, because you've seen a forecast, and this is a story. This is not what happened this summer, but this story. You've seen the forecast, and there is a guaranteed chance, 100% chance of rain is coming in two days. And it's going to be four to five inches, and the weather is going to cool down at least 20 degrees. So you anticipate that day with great joy. You just cannot wait for it to come. Although you are suffering right now in the present time through the heat, you're rejoicing. And as that day draws near, you can't hardly wait. You, you look outside, you see the clouds starting to dark up in the west. And you look on your phone, sure enough, there's rain coming. It's all the way from Oklahoma to Nebraska. There's no way that can miss us. It's coming, right? And you go outside and you, the, the cooler air rushes in. You, the rain starts to hit the ground and you just rejoice with great joy. Because your suffering is over, right? The rain has finally come. Now imagine that same scenario, only um, it's not hot, it's not dry, and then you have a forecast of rain. Are you going to be glad? Are you going to rejoice with great joy? Probably not the same, right? So the greater the suffering, the greater the rejoicing. And just remember, there's a 100% guaranteed chance. 100%. I guess it's not a chance. That Jesus is coming back. Okay? And he's going to return in, in glory. And those who have, who have suffered for the name of Christ are right now eagerly anticipating that day to come. So rejoice because Jesus is going to return in glory. Well, there's one last way or reason to rejoice, and that is in verse 14. It says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, this Greek word for insulted is an interesting one. It means to be assailed with abusive words, to be slandered, reviled, falsely accused, or, to, or spoken disparagingly, despairingly of, um, as a person in a manner not justified, to find fault in a way that demeans another, to mock, to heap insults upon as a way of shaming. And that all sounds really bad, to be insulted. In fact, the Jewish rabbis in that time considered insulting to be as evil as idolatry and fornication and bloodshed all combined. And why was that the case? Because by the defamation of one's character, the victim would lose his or her place in the community. If you were insulted at that time, because you depended on your good name, it would be very hard to, to buy and sell goods, to provide for your family, if your name was drugged through the mud. And that's what was happening to these, these believers. They were being uh, insulted. And Peter says, when you're treated this way because of Christ... You are blessed. And perhaps he is recalling what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 and 12. He said, Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they Persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know what this reward is going to be in heaven. Obviously, it's going to be a great reward just to be there with, with the Lord and to be without sin. But it seems to be something more than that. Jesus says this is going to be a great reward, and I'm sure it's not going to disappoint, whatever it is. So we're, we are blessed in the future 
if we suffer for the Lord, but we also are blessed right now. It says in the last part of verse 14, it says, You are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The Holy Spirit undoubtedly gives persecuted believers a peace that surpasses all understanding and the assurance that they truly are saved and secured in Christ. The assurance that they are not alone amid persecution, but that the Spirit is with them to bring them relief and comfort. This, too, is a blessing worth rejoicing over. So exalt in your suffering by, because you share in Christ's sufferings. You're connected to Christ. Rejoice because one day Jesus is coming back to relieve all this suffering. But until then, allow the blessing of the Holy Spirit to comfort you in your affliction. And by all means, I think we should, we should look forward to this blessing that is coming in heaven if we suffer well for Christ. But only if we're suffering, if we're truly suffering for Christ. And that's why we need to evaluate why we're suffering. And that's the last point in our outline. The last way we navigate suffering is by evaluating why we are suffering. Look at verses 16 and 17. Sorry, 15 and 16. It says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now it seems quite obvious that we shouldn't suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer because those are just, that's wrong. We shouldn't suffer for that. But Imagine you were in their place. Imagine that you were reviled. All those bad things were said about you. Your, your livelihood was at stake. You felt threatened. All right. You weren't able to provide for your family. Let's say you gave in to this temptation to take revenge into your own hands. And you actually murdered somebody who reviled you. Because you thought you were protecting what was rightfully yours. Well, Peter is saying... If you murdered somebody, you would rightfully go to jail. And if you went to jail, you would be suffering in jail, not for Christ. You would be suffering in jail because you're a murderer, right? So the point is that you can't exalt and be glad with joy in your suffering if you're suffering as a result of sin. The same goes for being a thief or an evildoer. But this last one is a very interesting one, a meddler. It's almost like Paul is going from a really big sin, murder, to a really small sin, meddling. And yet, even this small sin, meddling, disqualifies you from suffering for Christ. And there's a lot of commentary about what this word means, because it's unique to Peter. Peter's the only one that uses this word, and some people think that he may have invented it. He may have coined this uh, word from some other Greek words like it. Um, But what this word seems to mean is... It's describing someone who intrudes into matters that belong to someone else. They're overseeing others' affairs as a meddler or as a, busy, as a busybody. And I was trying to think of an example of how to explain this. Or, or, or some, I always like to have something that I can see. Oh, that's a meddler. And the only thing I could think of <clears throat> is kind of over the top, but do you guys remember Westboro Baptist Church up in Topeka? In the 90s and early 2000s, maybe a little bit in the 80s, I don't know how long it goes back. But they, in their zeal to preach against and confront sin of the sin of homosexuality, 
they were meddlers. They would picket public and private events, including funerals, sporting events, and concerts. They even picketed other churches if they felt like they didn't take a strong enough stand against homosexuality. They would fly the American flag upside down in disrespect to our country. And because of all that, they incurred a lot of uh, hate against them. They, the whole country um, was, was uh, going after this church. And in 1994, Fred Phelps, the pastor there, claimed that he was, this kind of persecution was proof that he was righteous. He was suffering for Christ. But I think Paul would say, this is not proof that you're suffering for Christ. This is proof that you're suffering as a meddler. Um, so we may not be tempted to, to murder or to steal or to be an evildoer, but we all need to guard against this idea of meddling. So maybe you, um, you annoy others at work because you elevate your personal beliefs and your convictions to a point that everyone else should obey and follow. Maybe you're the office Holy Spirit that is consistently intruding into other people's business, trying to correct their mistakes. And I think sometimes as believers, we, sometimes we honestly think we're better than others. We shouldn't, but we do. And we like to point out others' mistakes because it makes us feel better. And if this is your attitude, if this is how you conduct yourselves, you can be insulted and you can be made fun of and you can be ostracized but you take comfort in knowing that you're suffering for Christ right you're a believer and you're suffering for Christ well you need to evaluate your suffering are you really suffering for Christ or are you suffering because you are a meddler or maybe you have some unsaved family and in your zeal to see them come to saving faith perhaps you've become unbearable to be around always pointing out their sin or shortcomings Telling them how you would do something differently. You're sticking to n- your nose into their business and then you don't belong there. You're meddling in things that don't concern you. You're always pointing out their faults and how they raise their kids. So they don't invite you to family gatherings. They make jokes about your perfect Christian life. Are you really suffering for Christ? Or are you suffering because you're just plain annoying? If you act like a busybody or a troublesome meddler, you will be considered a pest and one who deserves to be mistreated. And, Paul, and Peter's saying, don't do this. Refrain from acting tactlessly without social graces. Because if you do, your suffering will not be for Christ. It will be for your own bad behavior. And this is shameful. He said it's shameful. But what is not shameful, in verse 16, is to suffer as a Christian says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you suffer for bearing the name of Christ, you are not to be ashamed. The world wants to shame you through insults, reviling, and slander, spreading lies and falsehoods about you to make you look terrible. But in God's sight, you are not ashamed. You are blessed. And when you suffer well and bring him glory, he is pleased. So evaluate your suffering. Are you suffering for good or for evil? And this brings us back to verse 17. And I just want to make some applications in these next few verses. Um, You might be thinking, it doesn't seem fair that by doing right and following Christ that I'm rewarded with suffering. While others who don't follow Christ 
seem to have a, a life of ease and comfort. They don't seem to have the trials that I do. Why is it the Christians that suffer? And I think Peter kind of anticipates this objection in verses 17 and 18 where he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What Peter is saying here is that everyone will face judgment. It starts with the household of God and then it moves out to unbelievers. And you might be thinking, well, I thought if we're saved, we're not going to face God's judgment. Doesn't Romans 8.1 say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? And that's true. If, if you are trusting in Christ's sacrificial work on the cross as the forgiveness of your sins, you no longer have to face God's judgment for your sin. But there still is a judgment. And this judgment that begins with the household of God is a refining judgment. 1 Corinthians 11.32 is an interesting verse. It says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Believers who are part of the household of God are facing a refining judgment through what we've already seen, fiery trials in verse 12, sharing in Christ's sufferings in verse 13, being insulted for the name of Christ in verse 14, suffering because they are a Christian in verse 16. This refining judgment happen, is happening right now. The word uh, for time in this verse, it is time for judgment to begin, is, is not a point in time, it's, it's more of a season in time. It's pointing to, I think, the, the church age. So as long as there is a household of God here on earth, it is time for God's judgment to begin with us. And then back in chapter 2 of this book, 1 Peter 2, um, Peter pictures the household of God as a spiritual house that is built out of stones. And these stones are pictured as believers. In 1 Peter 2.4 it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So believers are like stones that God chooses. He takes them and he shapes them to fit into his spiritual house. And doing some research for this, for this evening, I ran across a pastor. His name was Joseph, I can't say his last name, it's just Tyson, I think. And he was a pastor in Romania. And he suffered under communist rule in the 1970s. And, and he wrote this, and I thought this was very interesting. He said, at one time in Romania, the secret police were orchestrating a vicious campaign against me. Anonymous letters were sent to my church members so ugly that I could hardly stand it. The church, the church people were worried and disturbed. And it was then that I understood this concept of the rock quarry. I gave a sermon explaining, listen, I don't have enemies. All these people are God's stonecutters to me. And you know what a stubborn stone I am, very difficult to work on. I still have rough corners that I hurt people with, and they are working hard to chip them off. They teach me to be gracious. They teach me to be humble. They teach me to be long-suffering, patient, and forgiving. How can I learn all these things without these troublemakers? They are not my enemies. They are my father's stonecutters to me. 
So Joseph rightly saw that God's judgment upon him through these fiery trials of suffering for Christ was God's way of conforming him to the image of Christ. So everyone will face God's judgment, either God's refining judgment through these fiery trials or God's punishing judgment later. Look again at verse 17 and 18. It says, If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter's point is that if God allows his own children to suffer this way, how much worse is the suffering going to be for those who are not his? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what is going to be the outcome of the ungodly? This doesn't mean that it's hard for God to save sinners. It just means that the road to heaven is paved with difficulty and trials for believers. And if it's hard for believers who are God's children, how much worse will it be for the ungodly and the sinner? And knowing this should, should give us some compassion for those who are still a slave to their sin. We shouldn't envy their life of seeming life of ease. We should... Um, pray for those who persecute us. I think that's why Jesus told us that. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, so this is, the, this is the first point in our application. Everybody is going to suffer. We all suffer. We either suffer God's refining judgment now as a believer, or we're going to suffer God's punishing judgment later for sin. And it is far, far better to suffer now together as the household of God than to suffer alone in the lake of fire. And the second point in application, I just want to return to this question, why am I not being persecuted? If, if 2 Timothy 3.12 is true, which says, indeed, all those who live, desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, you might be saying, why is that not happening to me? And this topic came up in our Bible study a couple weeks ago, and we discussed it at great length, but I want to share with you some of the, what we talked about. Um, I think there's three different possibilities. First, maybe an obvious one, if you're not facing persecution, it's possible that you're not a believer. Um, you attend church, Sunday school, and Bible study, but you've never fully given your life or surrendered your life to Christ, and you're not truly desiring to live a godly life. The second possibility is that maybe you are facing some persecution, but you don't recognize it in the way that uh, you would think you would. Um, for example, there's often friction in families that have some saved and some unsaved in it. Um, an unbelieving spouse might walk out on a marriage because they don't want any part of their spouse's um, faith. And this type of suffering is a suffering for Christ. Remember Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What Jesus is saying that is, in a blended family of believers and unbelievers, there's going to be some suffering. And this suffering is often suffering for Christ. Persecution can also come from other believers, and that's often the case too. For example, a, a church may um, make a careful point to, to, to word a careful um, worded doc, doctrinal statement, maybe lengthy. 
They may take church membership very seriously. Uh, They may do church discipline. And if you do those things, other churches in the area start talking about you. You, There's a stigma that comes from that. Um, And this is a type of, of persecution in a way. So you may not recognize it. We may be being persecuted, and, and, you, and you don't see it as persecution, but it's there. And there are other examples, I'm sure. But the third possibility is probably the most likely and the most convicting. We avoid persecution because we are not willing to lovingly call out sin in the lives of others that need to be corrected. In John 7, 7, Jesus was speaking to his actual brothers. And at this time, they were not saved. And this is what he told them. He said, the world cannot hate you because they didn't trust in him. They didn't believe. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. So did you catch that? Jesus was hated and was ultimately killed because he confronted sinners and called them to repent. John the Baptist also suffered in jail, and then was martyred because he called Herod to repent of his sin of committing adultery. The Old Testament prophets suffered because they were obedient and they called the nation of Israel over and over again to repent and turn back to God. But we avoid suffering because when we see somebody caught in sin, we keep quiet. We're afraid that it might damage our relationship with that person. We're afraid of the awkward and uncomfortable feeling a conversation like that would bring. We're afraid of how they will react. They might think we're crazy for pointing out a sin that they don't think is a sin. So in short, we're afraid of confronting others because we're afraid of what will happen if we might share the gospel. We're afraid of suffering for that reason. So we keep quiet. And that's convicting to me. But if we do step out in faith... And we call others to repentance. What do we do? Or how do we prepare for this expecting suffering to come if we would act that way? And the last point I want to make tonight in application is how do we prepare for suffering? And we've just seen, obviously, that we can navigate suffering by expecting it and exalting in it and evaluating it. But what might suffering look like in the future? And unfortunately, I think the time is coming where we may not be asking ourselves, why am I not facing persecution? Because it will be very obvious. It's possible that, like in Peter's day, persecution could come from our government. Um, In the days to come, we may not have the same religious freedom and liberty that we enjoy now. And I think that scares a lot of us. And there's a lot I could say about this, but it's all... Speculation. Who knows what's going to happen? But that's a fear that I have, and I'm sure that's a fear that you have. What happens if, if the government is the one that's putting the clamps on us? What do you do? If that strikes fear in your heart, is your first thought to, to buy a cabin way off in the woods somewhere in Alaska, right? To stock up on ammunition, to buy all the food you can buy, to invest in gold, Those are all knee-jerk reactions, I think, that we have. We want to preserve our life. But how would Peter tell us to prepare? I think that's the most important thing. What would Peter say to do? And this brings us to the last verse here in verse 19. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The best way you can prepare for persecution is by preparing spiritually. Be convinced that God's word is true and trust your soul to God. Continue to live a good and holy life. The, the word for entrust here is it's really a banking term that means to take what's valuable to you and then deposit it in a bank for safekeeping. So do you want to deposit your treasure in a bank for safekeeping? I think we all do. What's more valuable than your soul? And who can keep it safer than your faithful creator? So as we face the pressure of suffering for Christ, we have two options. We'll always have these two options. The first option is that we want to seek relief by hiding our faith or not lovingly calling somebody out in their sin. We seek relief because it's our natural human instinct. We want to protect ourselves. But the path of least resistance is the broad path that leads to destruction and God's future judgment. So Peter's encouraging us to fight this natural instinct of self-preservation and to take the second option. The second option is to stand firm in your faith and entrust your soul to God. So together, as the household of faith tonight, the household of God, um, we should encourage one another. Take this opportunity to encourage one another not to fear persecution when it comes, but to prepare for it by expecting suffering, exalting in suffering, and after you have evaluated whether you're really suffering for the Lord or for Christ, remember to entrust your soul to your faithful creator. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, grateful for your word and how it instructs us, and we pray that you would not give us a spirit of fear as we face the future, but that you would give us a, a, a steadfastness that we would truly exalt in what you have given us. And if suffering comes our way, Lord, that we would praise and honor you, that it would drive us to desire to be with you more and more as the day approaches. I pray, Lord, that our conversation tonight would um, encourage one another. We would uplift one another. We would take this time to encourage us to, to press on for your glory and honor. And in your name we pray. Amen.